holiness is paramount for godly leadership. Christ-like qualities, a longing, passionate desire to understand and be exposed to the holiness of God in order that it might be reflected in our own lives. That's what sets us apart. That's what makes us extraordinary. That's what brings greatness into the life of the everyday Christian is holiness. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. Today we begin a new series of studies in the New Testament book of Titus. And Titus is among one of the smallest of the New Testament epistles. So if you would turn with me please to Titus chapter 1. And we're reading the first nine verses together. Titus chapter 1 and beginning at verse 1. And you'll find it on page 1857, 1857 of the church Bible. The Apostle Paul writes to Titus and he writes these words. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior." to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace to you from God the Father and Jesus Christ, our Savior. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, a husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading of His holy word. This morning I want to begin with a true story of an individual whom most of us will never have heard of. It's an interesting, intriguing story. came about around the year 1900 when Samuel Pierpont Langley was a man of considerable accomplishment in his own day. He was an astronomer here in the U.S., a physicist, an inventor. In 1900, he held a chair at the University of Harvard, he was the founder of the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory. The War Department in 1900 had given him $50,000 to 
to hire engineers and build what they called a flight machine. We know it today, of course, as an aeroplane. Langley knew all of the great minds of his day, and the New York Times followed his every move. They were fairly convinced that almost any week he would declare that at last he had a machine that could fly. He had a recipe for success. Orville, Wilbur, Wright, however, had a recipe for disaster. They were not given $50,000 from the War Department. In fact, they used the proceeds and the profits from their bicycle shop to pour into engineering and avionics. They kept going for months and months. Not a single member of their entire engineering team had graduated college. But we know their names, and we don't know Samuel Pierpoint Langley. What set them apart? What was it that enabled Orville and Wilbur on Thursday, December the 17th, 1903, to take four flights, and on their fourth attempt, they flew 852 feet, staying off the ground for a total of 59 seconds. What made them succeed when it should have been a disaster? And why did Pierpoint Langley fail when he had everything going? In the passage we're about to come to in Titus, Paul sets out for Titus what it is that creates exceptional, great, extraordinary, spectacular Christian people. And he lays it out in chapter 1. Now, if you're with us regularly on a Sunday morning, you will know that whenever we come to a book of the Bible, especially for the beginning of a series, we ask three questions. And the first is, who is writing? The second is, who are they writing to? And thirdly, why are they writing? So, let me give you a quick overview of the context of the book of Titus. Titus has three chapters, 46 verses in total. It is packed with rich doctrinal and practical teaching. And it seems almost as if the Apostle Paul has taken absolutely piles of wonderful teaching and packed it all into what is a postcard from the Apostle Paul. The book of Romans is 16 chapters in length, 1 Corinthians, almost about the same, if not, but three chapters, packs it all in. It was written probably in the year AD 68. The Apostle Paul, as most of us know, was a colossal figure in the first century. He strode onto the stage of history with greatness. His signature was, he left, excuse me, an indelible signature on not only on the church, but in history. His life, magnificent. His ministry, matchless. No one else, the exception of Christ, with the exception of Christ, has as such an impact as the Apostle Paul. 
And Paul is read every day by millions of people. He's coming towards the end of his life. First and Second Timothy were probably his final letters. And First and Second Timothy and Titus makes up what's called the pastoral epistles. And he's writing to individual people who were involved in pastoral ministry. They had a leadership role in the church. Titus, we know, had come to faith under Paul's ministry. He had shadowed Paul, worked alongside him, served with him in a place called Corinth. And Corinth was a pretty tough situation. But during the time that he served with Paul, what took place was this. Paul's lifestyle modeled for Titus what it meant to have a living faith the warmth of his friendship, the wisdom of his counsel, the depths of his prayer impacted the life of Titus. And Titus worked alongside Paul in Corinth, and now he's in the island of Crete. And Paul is writing to him to encourage him and to lay out for him what he needs to do in terms of having a fully functioning, healthy church in the island of Crete. And notice at verse 4, as we come into the text, he writes, to Titus, my true son, in our common faith. He held Titus in high regard with deep affection. He loved him dearly. And in fact, towards the end of 2 Corinthians, another New Testament letter, Paul is upset when he can't find Titus. And he says, I have no peace of mind. Where is Titus, my friend? He was looking forward to him coming uh, and for them meeting up again. So, that gives you a sense of what's going on. Crete is the context, of course. It's an island about 160 miles long. It had a large Roman facility for training soldiers. It was a strategic naval base, and it had a very lively harbor city. Uh, not an easy situation to uh, develop a church or churches, as we're about to see. Now, as we turn to verse 5, what do we discover? He says, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And what we discover here is this. Now, bear with me again while I give you a little more historical context. On the day of Pentecost, downtown Jerusalem, when the Holy Spirit, for the first time in history, impacted the lives of every believer, in the Old Testament, you had the Holy Spirit settling upon or coming upon or anointing individuals for particular seasons or for a particular purpose. But in the day of Pentecost, God Himself, in the form of the Holy Spirit, came for the first time to dwell in the heart of every believer, and lives were transformed, utterly renewed. And if you read Acts chapters 1 and 2, you get the context, and it also lists for us where people were from on that day when they were in downtown Jerusalem. Now, remember, they had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, and there were people from all over what we now call the Mediterranean Basin, and some of them were from Crete and they had gone back home to this small island. And can you imagine what happened when they went back home? Family and friends would be saying, now, wait a minute, you've changed. What, what on earth happened while you were up in Jerusalem? What, 
What's the difference in your life now than three weeks ago when you first left? And they would begin to say something like this. Something extraordinary has happened to me. I heard the gospel for the first time, and I heard of Jesus of Nazareth, who was God Himself, who came to this earth and died on a cross for my sins. And for the first time in my adult life, it made sense, and the Spirit of God came to live within me. And that's the change you see. Now, you can imagine the people in Crete saying, uh, uh, I'm sorry, would you mind repeating that? And of course, they would begin to explain again. And they'd say, now, wait a minute. God Himself comes to earth, dies on a cross, rises on the third day, and His Holy Spirit for the first time now has come down and changed your life? Yes, you've got it. And they'd be saying, okay. And they would do what any sane person would do. They would stand back and say to one another, hmm, we'll see if this lasts and it lasts a second week, and a third week, and a fourth week, and a fifth week, and months go into years, and now 30-something years later. There are small groups of Christian people all over Crete, and Paul is saying to Titus, Titus, I left you in Crete so you can straighten out what was left unfinished. Appoint elders to these small churches godly people who will give purpose and focus and direction to these young, growing, struggling churches. They need structure. They need leadership. They need godly people to model the faith and point the direction in which they're going. That's what Titus was tasked to do. And for those of you who love textual analysis, please note this. When he says, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished, the word straighten is the same Greek root word for orthopedics or orthodontists. And those who work either in dentistry or the field of medicine will tell you that the sooner you begin to straighten out the bones that are being twisted or the teeth that have become twisted, the better it is for the patient. And that gives you a picture of what Paul was saying to Titus. Titus, get to work. Help them bring purpose and focus and direction into these young, growing churches. Get alongside them and assist them and do that by appointing elders. That's what's going on in verse 5. And when Paul writes to Titus, what are the qualifications he is looking for in godly leadership? That's what the rest of the chapter is about. Look with me, please, at verse 6. When he says, an elder must be blameless, a husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Please notice what Paul says. An elder must be blameless. He doesn't write, an elder must be sinless. He doesn't say that. He says, must be blameless. The Apostle Paul has been around long enough to know that no sinless people exist. There are no perfect people with the exception of Christ. And he knows that. But he's saying, 
Titus, when you are looking for someone to provide leadership in the life of a congregation who are growing and developing and long for the things of God, select someone who is blameless, an individual of integrity, someone with character, someone who is trustworthy, someone who has no obvious fault, someone who, and then he adds what? The husband of but one wife. And the emphasis here in the passage is on one. In other words, he's saying, Titus, don't select someone who has three or four wives. For the life of me, I cannot understand why someone would want three or four wives. I just cannot get that. Now, please don't be reading into this, because I will be in trouble at lunch when I get out of here. One's more than enough for any man. And we know this. And he's saying, a man who has one wife. Then he says, Titus, notice how they deal with those they love the most. Children. Look at their children. Titus, notice how they deal with those they love, those that are closest to them, those that see them day after day, week after week. How do they treat their own family? And if they treat their own family well, the chances are they will treat the family of God well also. Titus, be careful who you're selecting. Look at the qualifications. Someone who is blameless, someone who loves his family, someone for whom a good reputation is important, character, integrity. These are important things when it comes to godly leadership. And what's more, Titus, please remember this, that children in a family can see authenticity and credibility. They know when mom and dad say one thing in public and do another in private. Look for consistency, not only in their own life, in the way they raise their family, and the way they have, the way they have modeled the faith for their children. Is that faith real, credible, authentic? Does their walk equal their talk? That's what he's saying right here. And then he takes it a step further. One who is self-controlled. Someone who is mature. Someone who understands what it means to live a Christ-like life day by day. And then he adds upright and holy. Excuse me, upright, holy, and disciplined. And that's where I want to end this morning, with this thought. When we began this morning, I used the illustration of Orville and Wilbur Wright, along with Samuel Pierpoint Langley. And I said at that point, what is it that sets some people apart? What is it that makes them extraordinary? What is it that brings into their life a sense of greatness. And it's at the end of these qualifications that is a single thing that sets godly leadership apart. Self-controlled? Absolutely. Character, integrity, good at raising their own family, people who will not gossip, others who will not domineer, those who are hospitable, 
all crucial, all important. But it's at the end Paul highlights that one additional attribute that will set godly leaders apart. Over lunch, some of you, I suspect, will say, oh, I had no idea First Pres had a no-alcohol policy, and come to think about it, I've, I've never seen that, never seen alcohol served. Others will say, well, wasn't that an interesting diversion on elders and overseers and episcopos and presbutero and interesting? But this final attribute, I doubt that any of us will discuss it over lunch because it's too sacred for that. It's too important to enter into casual conversation. When we come to see what Paul adds at the end of this list, it is seriously unsettling and unnerving. And what does he add right at the end? The individual who is holy and disciplined holiness is paramount for godly leadership. Christ-like qualities, a longing, passionate desire to understand and be exposed to the holiness of God in order that it might be reflected in our own lives. That's what sets us apart. That's what makes us extraordinary. That's what brings greatness into the life of the everyday Christian is holiness. Most of you will know that in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah has a vision of God, he doesn't describe God as being justice and justice and justice, or love, 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 or compassion, 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 but he talks of God as being holy, holy, holy. And holiness, when we think it through and study it and focus on it, means we take the eyes off of ourselves and put our focus on Him and Him alone. And holiness does not pat us on the back. It doesn't tell us that we're good boys and girls. It doesn't build our ego or our self-esteem. But what it does is this, hear me, beloved, please, that when we come face to face with the holiness of God in all His wonder and majesty, the thing we want to do most is to turn away because we're reminded of how pure and gracious and loving He is. And then we're reminded of the depravity of our own sin. And that's why Paul is saying to Titus, Titus, if you are ever to select men and women for godly leadership, if they are ever to provide purpose and focus and direction for these small, growing, healthy churches, take men and women of holiness, because they will then seek to be Christ-like in their daily living. Christ-like in their prayer, Christ-like in the way they raise their children, Christ-like in the way they conduct business with others, they will seek to bring holiness into the boardroom in their place of business. 
they will seek as teachers to bring them into the classroom where they have young lives in front of them and model genuine, real, authentic faith for the children they are in charge of. And for parents, they in turn will seek to model holiness for their children. That's why he leaves holiness to the end. He needs Titus to get it. And if you are tempted this morning to say, Richard, I hear what you're saying. I understand all you're saying. I am in full agreement with it, but I have not been called to be an elder or a deacon or godly in my leadership. Understand this, that you inevitably will influence your peers by the conduct and character of your lifestyle. And that's where you're to show holiness. The mum who sits down with her 13-year-old boy who is not doing well at school, when she prayerfully and patiently helps him through homework in math or science or languages, when she consistently works with him, that is showing holiness at a practical level because she's saying, Father, show me how I can help him. It's when the father spends his Saturdays supporting his 16-year-old daughter who thinks she's useless at soccer. It's when he spends time heading the ball back and forward, dribbling with her, keeping it up, helping her to grow in her sport. It's because he has been impacted by the love and grace and holiness of his own heavenly Father, and he wants his daughter to see in him what it means to be a Christ-like parent. That's the kind of qualities that we should have in the Christian life. That's what sets us apart. That's why Paul packs all of this into this opening chapter of Titus. And it's why this week we should take five minutes each day to read this chapter again and say, Father, show me in my life where I need to be applying your word. Father, I fully understand what you have called me to. And remember, he never calls the enabled, He enables the called. And when you're called, you realize you can't do it in your own strength. And it's then you can step out in faith, say, by faith and say, Father, help me, strengthen me, enable me, because I know this, I know that wonderful, blessed assurance that Jesus is mine, and allow me, please, to allow others to see Him living in me. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this remarkable passage of Scripture. Our prayer this morning is simply this that You would grant to each one of us a Christ-like desire for holiness, and holiness at a very practical level, holiness in our home, holiness in our place of work, holiness as we engage with each other, and help us, please, O oh God, to be the Christ-like men and women You have called us to be. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. To purchase a DVD of today's message, please send a check or money order for $10 to First Presbyterian Church. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Do you need prayer for something or someone in your life? First Presbyterian Church offers a healing prayer service each Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. Our prayer ministers will quietly intercede for you or anyone you are representing who needs prayer for physical healing, emotional healing, or forgiveness. Our hope is that you will encounter Jesus, the healer and redeemer, in a deep and meaningful way.